We had families of six children in one family, like six adult children, late teenagers, that all started using drugs in the flats around St. James's, and all of them would be HIV positive. Did so, they all die? In the early days, yeah. Hello again and welcome to Insights. In this episode, I'm talking to Professor Fiona Mulcahy about the many challenges she faced at the start of her career in genitourinary medicine, when there was very little known about HIV and AIDS. Also, her strong relationship with her patients and how she felt when Rory O'Neill, also known as Patty Bliss, dedicated his tribute dance to her in Dancing with the Stars. Fiona Walcahy, thank you so much indeed for coming in. Um, as somebody who I think was sort of easing herself into retirement or maybe semi-retirement, you got a lot of attention recently uh, from the Dancing with the Stars programme when uh, Rory um, O'Neill, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Panty Bliss, uh, dedicated a dance to you. And obviously it's a professional and doctor-patient relationship that goes back a long time, but it's something um, that has brought a lot of attention to the work that you did. Um, how, how, how did you feel? about that particular experience of late well, well it was great I mean I was um, I was just saying to somebody else you know it's so rare really that you get validation like that from a patient you know and we do all these things and look after patients for years and people say thank you in different ways but to have it like that was really special so well, yeah I was delighted and he has been a patient of yours, I think, for almost three decades, for 27 years or thereabouts. Yeah, now, yeah. when you met him first, the outlook for him would not have been particularly good. No, I mean, pre-mid-90s, you know, it was a death sentence. Basically, if you had HIV, you were going to die. And it was a case of how long you could keep somebody alive and give them the best quality of life. But, you know, you were saying there was no hiding it there. You know, you had to tell the patients that this is how it was. And they all wanted to know how long have I got? OK, I would sell up everything, do my trip around the world. A lot of my patients did that and go out with a bang. And, and then then after a while, I started being anxious. Gosh, there's a lot of research. What if they don't die and they'll have no money left? <laughs> so that was always at the, the to go to go right back to the start. Um, you, you you were appointed at a very early age, I think the age of 30, a consultant, the first consultant dealing with HIV AIDS in St. James's. How did that come about? Um, well, I had been, um, so I started off training in James's after I tri- graduated from Trinity. And then I moved over to Yorkshire, to Leeds, because I got married to my husband who was doing radiology there. And I started doing gastroenterology and Oh, really thought I was on a career path. I wanted to come return to Ireland and obviously wanted the consultant position and that specialty. And I went on a course to London, stayed with a registrar who had previously um, worked with. And she said, are you stark raving mad there? You know, you're female. You probably will have a family. You'll have to have your children in your holidays. It's horrendous there is no possibility and she said you need to think outside the box and she said why not think of GU medicine a friend of mine has moved because he's quite interested in hepatitis and there was a big outbreak of hepatitis in young gay men at that time in London so I said oh no I'd miss the real acute medicine so that was my really concern but I went back from that 
meeting and on the notice board in the Leeds General Infirmary was wanted urgently locum in GU medicine. Just explain a little bit about what GU medicine is. So GU medicine at the time would have been the modern version of the old venereology and venereology would have been sexually transmitted infections and akin to dermatology at the time it was very outpatient based you didn't have really sick patients so I was thinking why would I want to do something that was so non-challenging from my perspective at that time and so anyway but when I went back and saw in um, on the LGI notice board looking for a locum senior reg I said oh three months I'll do it just to see what it was like and in that three month period HIV hit LGI, the Leeds General Infirmary, with the bang. There were lots of patients who were really sick. And my colleagues at the time had been in this sort of more non-acute medical field. So I sort of leapt in with gusto and loved it. And that's how I then they created a position, for permanent position for me there in, in the LGI. It was an early case, I suppose, of don't let a good crisis go to waste in career terms. Absolute serendipity, you know, just one of those good things that happened. But pure luck, really. And how soon after that then did you return to Dublin and St. James's? So I came I came back to James's in January 87. Um, and I myself, there were two other female consultants in the hospital at the time. Um, at my interview, I remember being asked, how did they think, how would I feel about examining male patients genitally? And of course, I couldn't believe somebody had asked me a question like that, having done it for so many years in, in the UK. Um, they also wanted to, uh, they asked me, did I believe that homosexuality should be legalised? So of course I said, absolutely. I was wondering what other answer one would give to such a you know question at, for such an interview. But anyway, yeah. And so what, what kind of uh, challenge then did you face when you came here in terms of the number of patients, the kind of team you had with you, the facilities, the, the kind of resources you had? So at the time I had, in the first year, there were 9,000 patient attendances in the year, which, and there was myself. <clears throat> I had a half a secretary, well, not even half secretary, a half a receptionist, uh, half a junior SHO, like junior, junior level doctor and um, two nurses who worked two clinics a week. And that was it. Um, and we ran and there was no space, no clinics. So the clinics had to be run in the old outpatient department after the patients, other patients from other clinics left. So there were patients that were departing at 5 p.m. from oncology, say, and we were moving in as the STI clinic at that time for the night. And at that stage, AIDS was seen as something of, of it had really dawned on people that this is a, a big crisis health wise yeah. right across the world. And at the, and then there was movement. I mean, to be fair, I like, couldn't have landed in a better hospital. St. James's at the time was progressive, um, was uh, and certainly the le- least stigmatising of any environment you could work in within the medical s- set up at the time in, in the in in Ireland. Um, many of the other hospitals, you know, would, did not embrace HIV as a, a, an area they wanted to develop. And there was a lot of stigma for patients attending those by accident or by, you know, by appointment. And then, and I suppose to an extent still, it was seen as uh, an illness that affected primarily gay men. Now, what, what, could you just describe the, the kind of patient list that you would have had? So at, the, at that time, there were a lot of young gay men, but the problem 
from our perspective in Ireland was that there was also a huge outbreak in drug use in the in the city and many of those were diagnosed positive either in prison or because they were presenting for drug treatment centres and then they had a test. So so really, I, w- I had come from a centre where it was all looking after all young gay men in Leeds. This was looking after, I'd say, 50-50% initially, but the drug use rapidly became the predominant group that we were looking after in the early days. Um, and the only other group that was similar, perhaps, in the UK and Ireland was in Edinburgh, and they also had a big centre. So we talked a lot with them, how they were managing, and the government, obviously, were talking to their government people in terms of how this... this and and what about up. women patients, then? There were very few. They were generally either, well, drug users, there were female drug users, and most of those were as a result of drug use as opposed to as a result of sexual transmission at the time. And at what stage then would you have come across uh, infants who would have been born with HIV? So they, I mean, at the same time, they were, uh, once any female was positive, there was a risk of transmission of HIV to a child. It was very high until they got the drugs. And AZT was the first drug that was produced that reduced that way down to 8% transmission rate. That was that didn't come though until the 90s, am I right in thinking? No, AZT was actually one of the first drugs and that was there in the, the late 80s. It was one of the rapid drugs that came uh, became available. But essentially it would have been seen to, to contract HIV um, would have been seen essentially as a death sentence. Yeah. Now, how did you go about dealing with that? You said earlier that um, you had to tell people the truth. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So it was... <coughs> it was t- they well, patients sort of they you know can you remember the ads the ads with the tombstone and it was death and gloom and AIDS was all written on that tombstone and and I think that in itself you know was horrifying for patients they suddenly realised that oh they had a, a, a death sentence awaiting them basically and so many patients would say you know how long do you think I have to live other patients would say oh well just keep me going um, don't you know I'll, and and patients were quite well for up to five years you know they they may not have had any any illnesses at all and then suddenly they'd get immunosuppressed illnesses where they might lose their sight develop brain tumors become demented have severe the commonest one was that when they would get a severe pneumonia it was called pneumocystis carina pneumonia which would mean that you would admit patients um, and often they would end up in intensive care. And the and if you got them through that infection, if you really you know worked hard, didn't give up, you could get patients through those infections. And then they might be great for another f- number of months and they'd get something else. So it was all about almost trying to stay ahead of what else could they get. Was there any antibiotic they could take that might prevent the infection rather than prevent HIV progressing? We had nothing to stop HIV really at the time. Would you always though make a point of saying you will die and more more than likely you will die from this, but there's a lot of research going on? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you were, you know, like I'm very black and white, I say it as it is. But obviously, I didn't know how the long term outcome was going to be for many patients. So there was always that hope that they would something would develop, that there would be better drugs. There was huge amount of research big research all around Europe I was on a number of committees and you know we were trying out new drugs new combinations over the time but it wasn't until the mid 1990s 
that they presented data from, again, a multinational study which showed that if you had three drugs that you seemed to prevent the virus developing resistance because before that we'd give one and it seemed to work and then suddenly the virus would take off again um, and it became, it, it actually, I used to say to my patients, imagine your virus is a transformer and it sees this drug and it knocks it out but then it gets really clever and it mutates to get across and jump over the drug so it's no longer controlled. But we found out with three different types of drugs at the same time, you could then control the virus and the death rates went way down rapidly. From what you were saying about uh, a lot of your patients being intravenous drug users and people using needles that weren't safe to use and exchanges and so forth, uh, that would suggest that maybe predominantly your patients would have come from maybe working class or underprivileged backgrounds. Yes, and that was largely yeah inner city Dublin. I mean, St. James's was obviously in the heart of drug use at that time, you know, and there were a lot of patients. And the, I mean, the scary thing was you'd have one patient coming in and he said, oh, you know, my brother isn't great. And then you'd have, like, we had families of six children in one family, like six adult children, late teenagers, that all started using drugs in the flats around St. James's and all of them would be HIV positive. Did they all die? In the early days, yeah. Yeah, there were families that mothers lost, you know, six children, you know, when it was only... and. I remember going and the the uh, sort of and everybody knew about it. It wasn't a hidden endemic at that t- time in the flats. They, you know, people would know. Oh, look, they look so bad. They must be have HIV. That was. What would you say to those mothers? What did you say to them? What did I say? I say, how are things? How's life? I remember one woman saying to me, she was um, had a birthday party for her son. And we asked somebody to give them a lift and they it back and forth from the clinic because this guy had had blindness due to HIV. And they they eventually invited the guys who had given them the lifts to the par- birthday party. And so we were, just, you'll have to go. You know, you've been invited. That's really, you have to go to that party. And we were say, how did you get on? They said, well, the, the mother was there holding forth and there were multiple children and families in and out. And she said, you know, life is really hard. There's, you know, Johnny or whatever, who is, he's blind from HIV. How long more has he got to live? And I have another son in Mount Joy. He has HIV. And another one has lost a leg because he had it shot off and he has HIV. And look, two of the daughters there have two children, both positive. And she said, but worse still, the tiles are falling off the bathroom. So it was like one thing after the other and and they just kept going. And, yeah. and you alluded earlier to maybe some of your better off patients yeah. who were in a position to make arrangements to do the world tour, to, to spend whatever money or yeah. savings they had. But you had you had some very interesting cases, I suppose, of people who who went maybe to extremes or they just were very practical about the kind of yeah. arrangements they put yeah, in place. I had one patient and he um, he said to me, he came in, uh, now this was somebody who had had cytomegalovirus, he had pneumocystis, he had all the bad signs. And he said, look, I know it's getting towards the end. He said, how long more do you think? And I said, it, well, 12 to 18 months maybe, unless something happens. And he said, okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I said, oh, um, he, he said, OK, that's fine. And I said, well, why do you want to know? I don't want my any funeral cost to be left to my family when I die. I'm going to organise it. 
and he said I've seen a great deal so off he went to the great deal Massey's had a funeral deal where they were off he said for £400 in the day and he said 400 that's not bad. So he went, he said, I went, he told me the story. Was this an all in? All in. He's, I said, what'd you get for that? He said, no problem. He got the funeral, the coffin, and he got, uh, he got a uh, hearse back and forth to the, the burial and um, a wreath around for things. So he went into Massey's and said, I want Gra- to Grey was extra, was it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> he said, go in. And he went in, he said, I went in and he said, I want to book a funeral to your man in Massey's and Massey's said oh I'm very sorry for your trouble sir no no one has died yet oh god is one he said it's for myself so they were a bit put out but he said oh, okay and I said I want to look have a look at the coffin and they said well it's basic so he went and had to look at the coffin he said oh no that'll do me fine he said and I understand you get this and this and this and they said yes by the way he said now what do you get buried in? What do you wear? Do you wear a suit or whatever? And they said, well, you can. But, you know, maybe what the best thing is, you could also choose one of these shrouds. You can wear, what's a shroud? He said, well, it's, you know, you can have white, cream or blue. And he said, you know something, I I just couldn't. He said, I said to them, by the way, he said, okay, I'll try on that blue one there. I want to lie in that coffin and I want to see what I look like in the coffin, he said. And I want you to tell me which is the best one, the white, the blue or the cream. And they this thought this guy is pulling our leg and they decided to call the guards. <laughs> so he said the guards arrived, sure enough. And then they said, the guard arrived and he said, like, guard, they're so-and-so. This guy was practice law. He said... Under law such and such and number such as I'm entitled to, as I'm the purchaser to try on what I want to try. And he said, actually, you are. So he said, well, I got into the coffin and he said, I'll tell you something. The blue was fabulous on me. So I picked the blue and he said, that was great. So I said, oh, that's brilliant. And But you think that was the end of the story? Unfortunately not. So within a few months, all this new drugs came out and it was all over the news. Patients will survive. They can take these meds. So your man came back in to see me and he said, you know, I'm putting on these new drugs. And sure enough, he did fantastic. He's probably still alive. He emigrated, but is still alive. And they said, um, he said, but the most embarrassing day of my whole life, he said, was going back into Massey's to look for my money back. (laughs) Did he get it? He did. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good legal practitioner right enough. So... At the same time, and you, those kind of incidents and stories, they would kind of brighten your day a little bit. And, oh, yeah, we used uh, to... But, but, but there was a terrible, terrible stigma. People just didn't want to know or even tell maybe their nearest and dearest what they were suffering from. No, so that was a problem, particularly if we had patients in intensive care and we'd call in the family saying, you know, they're not doing so well. And so, oh, can we speak to the consultant or... I'd sort of say to my colleagues, look, maybe you're the anaesthetist. Any chance you'll talk to them? Because they'd be Googling who I, what I was doing and mm. then the, the cat would be out of the bag. And the patient would have said, I don't want my mother or father to know what I've died of if I die. And please don't tell them. Um, and that was why the coroner actually was quite good at the time. So we used to say immunosuppressed or something nonspecific on the death certs. But everybody knew in the coroner's office what that meant. Um, 
But even like things like, you know, <coughs> funerals and viewing of remains and that oh, yeah, sort of that thing, was, that, that was difficult too. So that was, they were, you know, in, again, it was a bit like when COVID broke out. We were all scared. People were scared of HIV, you know, and they were scared. Could they pick it up from from touching a body or touching somebody who was dead or kissing somebody? And, you know, and, and there was a lot of, you know, scaremongering about that as well. Um, it was true to say that body fluids did secrete the virus for quite a number of days after somebody had died. So initially, when the virus was so prevalent and no treatment, they buried patients in body bags. So they were like black body bags. So that for a family who would normally have, you know, the horse and carriage, the body on view, that was really traumatic. And, you know. And you would have, I suppose had difficulty explaining to people trying to avoid telling them the telling them the truth because yeah. you had a confidential relationship with your Absolutely. patient. Absolutely. And well and then of course there was the issue so say you had a patient and their partner had never been tested because they never knew that their partner who may have been bisexual say mm. for instance had HIV. So that was very difficult and we had a lot of ethical issues that arose as a result of that because you have a duty of care to your patient primarily but you would also have a duty of care to prevent infection spread and so forth so we used to uh, uh, we'd have meetings about that with social science and with social workers and they would work a lot with patients to get them to disclose their status and if they didn't then we ultimately might have to do that. So that was quite, that took a long time to get that over the line because and the medical council... Would this be when people were still alive? Yes, so sometimes. And the medical council initially were saying you not, that you couldn't disclose. And the lawyers were saying you couldn't disclose. And we then went back. And to be fair, the medical council did change it, that you had a duty of care to then the potential part, the person who also might have become infected. But we didn't have to do it that often, but we did do it yeah. sometimes. Um, and you talk about <coughs> uh, ethical dilemmas. I mean, there were some ethical dilemmas, I think, which were spoken about as you were uh, uh, preparing to retire uh, when you were speaking to colleagues at St. James's, the kind of things that you would have oh, yeah, had to deal with. The great, the, the good ones were coming in <coughs> and they um, they said, oh, yes, um, Christmas. You know, we want to buy you a present, and they'd come in and they'd have the brochures from Marks and Spencer's. Brothers. Just take off what you want. You know, that would be they would be planning to go in and rob them, and we'd say, "Oh no, please, please don't." We're just so grateful that you're. You know, do not do anything like that. And then one one um, year, somebody came in and said, "We're having none of this. This you have to pick something." So I brought in something for you to choose and I'd like you to pick something and so they had out of the bag came a big tray of the most fantastic solitaire and three stone diamond rings worth a fortune I've never been able to buy one since but anyway they said pick one and you <laughs> so always yeah. have to say look no thank you <laughs> no of course Sean <laughs> <laughs> take them away take them back to wherever you've borrowed them from yeah. um, but I suppose that showed an intense sense of gratitude on, on their part yeah no it was it was uh, really good and the other uh, you talk about ethical dilemmas another one was I was on a, I went to a meeting in Brussels once 
and there was uh, some strike or whatever and the plane I had to go get the train to Amsterdam rather than coming back from Brussels so Amsterdam I was in Amsterdam airport and there was this nun beside me and she I thought god there's something about her something about her but anyway I was halfway across the the Irish Sea coming um coming down to land in Dublin and she was sitting a number of rows behind me and I suddenly dawned I know who it is one of my patients dressed as a nun <laughs> and there I am going the nun is arriving going up through customs and exercise and I'm thinking Amsterdam dressed as a nun there is only one reason and one reason only <laughs> and I thought will I say something won't I say something anyway I don't know whatever I said nothing but she walked through customs at the other side she was waiting for me to come through she, big wink (laughs) nice to see you (laughs) Um, so that's the kind of thing you would have had to deal with Um, and um, so there was obviously a sense of um, ingenuity there as well but I'd imagine though that you would have had to deal with some maybe unsavoury type of patients as well who mightn't have been as gracious uh, or as or or as grateful Um. Yeah, no, we had a lot of patients who came in from prison services. And um, initially, I was, I suppose, an innocent abroad and say, look, I, I just, it's not dignified to examine somebody when they're chained to a trolley or to a bed or at one stage, so they changed somebody to a radiator <laughs> in the clinic. Um, and um, we sort of agreed with prison services that if they were happy and they didn't think somebody was a flight risk or whatever, that they would, you know, uncuff them. And so things did improve. But there were instances like one of my doctors, somebody got a needle and syringe holding them to the neck. Um, you know, I was assaulted a number of times. That would be um, the way it happens, you know, mm-hmm. and you just expected that sometimes. Um, but the... But on the whole, yeah, they, so it wasn't always easy. We had the somebody came in was threatening to set the clinic on fire. At one stage, the clinic was so awful, we were all thinking, maybe that would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> it mightn't be the worst thing that would happen. But anyway, we didn't pursue that. I can, yeah. But um, how, how seriously were you assaulted? Um wasn't that bad I suppose I was just one a patient in the bed well clocked me basically <laughs> hit me in the face and head and so on. yeah w- would you report that to the guards no not um, at the time would, would a patient who would have done that would they be basically expelled from treatment or anything like that um, not well I, that was another ethical dilemma would you do that or not so so we did have an arrangement with the matter if we had a difficult patient that was causing problems we would often transfer them to their care and likewise they transferred some of their difficult patients to our care and that worked fine um, we like in that instant I didn't particularly want to do that so I didn't do it initially but then I was getting sort of threats all the time you know she was going to get me as I came out of the hospital and so on so I I then did transfer but you see patients you don't know what's going on in their lives and you know if maybe I would be like that if I had been born into the circumstances that person had been born into you know and they had there was a lot of you know a lot of our patients had experienced sexual abuse had been you know living in families that were so dysfunctional you know starving the kids were they'd bring children into the clinic sometimes you know hitting the children it was it wasn't Mm. we can all be you know without I think you have to think about where somebody comes from 
all the time. And try and put yourself in their shoes, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about how it might not have been a bad thing if the uh, if the clinic had been burnt down. But it was it must have been quite a battle to get resources, to get facilities, to get support, to get extra staff. How did you how did you go about that? And how did you find dealing with maybe politicians or senior civil servants? I mean, initially it wasn't easy. It got very, it got much better as um, HIV became more controllable um, and we got more staff. And to be fair, there were many people who were very supportive. But, you know, people are supportive without actually acting on the support and you could be waiting for years and so on. Um, initially, with, with the low number of staff looking after a significant number of patients, like I was in there every weekend and every night and, you know, it was it was quite difficult. But um, I ha- we had one meeting in the College of Physicians where a number of people from the EU uh, were invited to give talks about how their services were. And I knew these guys from some of the committees <clears throat> and uh, they um, they I, they presented their system, how they worked it, what they had and so on. I presented ours, which was very limited. And I remember one stage and, and and there was very good practical advice. And, you know, we had strategies that evolved from that meeting. But at the end of the meeting, um, some senior civil servants and came up to me from the Department of Health and said, we'll get you for that. Basically saying we're not happy with what you said about the shortcomings. Yeah, exactly. Um, they didn't get me, so it's OK. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was it was quite an ominous thing for them to have said to you. Yeah, I suppose I must have been. Yeah, well, I, I think I probably was so young. I didn't care <laughs> what they said, to be honest. And you did get the facilities. You <coughs> did. Were the particular ministers who you were particularly supportive? I'm thinking back in the day, you would have had the likes of, oh, I don't know, you probably go back as far as Rory O'Hanlon, if not Barry Desmond. Um, people like John O'Connell was there for a while. Yeah, they were all probably earlier stages and they weren't there then as much. Um, there was Mary O'Rourke, who was very good. Um, there was... Um, no, Brendan Howland Brendan Brendan was great they were all I mean really good and they did set up committees but everything in government goes by committees you almost have to induce a crisis to get action in the day which is you know like on top of your day job that is another big effort and yeah. you know you'd be seen as oh the whinging one saying she's nothing and so on and um, anyway yeah. maybe the fact as well that like it was medicine was so male dominated and it seemed even within a hospital structure that those that you know were as bombastic and you know hitting the tables that they seemed to get what they needed more than somebody like myself You said at the start you were one of just three women only three women consultants in James's what's the what's the balance like now? Oh it's I'd say at least 50% if not 60% female so it is hugely female predominant Now things started to improve in terms of people's life expectancy treatment <coughs> and so forth from the mid 90s so yeah. Uh, it was no longer a death sentence. No longer. But those tablets were 16 tablets morning and night. Imagine taking 16 tablets. I mean, we all take the odd vitamin. Can you imagine? And these were like big bullets. So things have improved even better. Now we're talking about one tablet a day. It, they've, got, they've now manufactured them so that they're smaller. So they're tiny little pills. 
they also are looking now in the future that you might be able to do, you know, an injection once every three months, once every six months. And there's even new technology where you might have a bit like an implant that would last for a year. So things are definitely improving. Of course, everybody says, when can you cure? I want a cure. <laughs> and the cure might be worse than the medication they're taking. But that is one of the aims going but forward. But if somebody is is diagnosed as being HIV positive <coughs> and is taking the medicine the, or the, 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 the single small pill a day, what kind of a life do they have? I mean, are they in any sense or any way debilitated? There is this thing that perhaps you will have earlier ageing. Um, and that you're more likely to get heart disease or certain cancers and so on. So all of those patients need to be under a surveillance programme. So we would see all of those patients every six months and give them six months supply of meds, do a full physical review and check them for if they're male, for prostate cancer, for um, make sure they're female, they're going for their cervical checks, their mammos. And we do screening for bowel cancer. We do everything. So, in fact, if you are HIV positive nowadays, there is some evidence that perhaps you might outlive somebody who is HIV negative. And there, because you're getting those reviews on a regular basis. Um, and and then oncology in terms of treating cancers has become so bet- much better that that outcome is also excellent. Has there been similar progress in the treatment of other uh, sexually transmitted diseases? Um, there, uh, in, so treatment of STIs are, is relatively easy. Okay, it's not most of them are sensitive to many of the drugs that we have, um, other than things like gonorrhea, and that is now a bit more resistant to antibiotics. So we're worried about the emergence of resistance to antibiotics. Um, so that means that you need to not just blanketly treat somebody when they don't have that infection. The more you treat something that isn't there, the more likely that resistance will emerge within the community. Um, so our main thing is to avoid these infections causing major damage. And so what has improved with the with HIV probably, like HIV, I suppose, when it was terrible, had the benefit of widening the sexual health services around the country and also had the benefit of opening our our lives like we were condoms weren't freely available for everyone oral contraceptives weren't that available and people didn't talk about their sex lives now everyone does and it is totally normal so it normalized sexual health I think much earlier but than it would have what about the caseload though that your okay. <laughs> former colleagues would not have to deal with as a result of those changes because they, they are vast changes they are, yeah so the caseload is in James's we would see about 30,000 STD attendances per year um, so that is huge you know there are huge numbers of attendances. Um, but that's good, you know, because at least patients are coming for treatment. And that doesn't, we've now sort of honed the service in that we tend to see patients with symptoms because now you can buy or you can order online your free testing kit at home and you can test first off. And did I read recently that there were something like 100,000 of those kits dispatched in the post to people yeah. who wanted to check themselves out? Yeah, which is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose <laughs> it's, a, it's a measure as well or an indication as to how... Um, uh, people's lifestyles have changed. Yeah, or is it? Or is it just that? Um, yeah, I presume it probably is that people are more. Do you think people are more sexually active well, than they used to be? <laughs> I, I, I suspect the answer to that question is yes. I'm just reminded, um, or I recall, uh, 
on Morning Ireland, oh, it must be 30 years ago, it's the early 90s anyway, um, <clears throat> there was a government um, plan to have safe sex ads put out on RTE about the use of condoms and so forth. And the RTE authority, or at least the manage, board of management, balked at it. And I remember interviewing somebody from that board yeah. and they, 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 they were resisting this idea because they feared it would be a result in the promotion of casual sex. Mm-hmm. Now, in the end, the ads went out because I think there was a threat of a directive, you know, put these yeah. ads out anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that's um, that's a measure, I think, of how things have changed. And, you know, you look across the water and you see that something like um, one third of mm-hmm. uh, baby boomers say nothing wrong with uh, one night stands or, or yeah. casual sex. W- yeah. What's the issue? So, I mean, people's people's lifestyles and attitudes have changed wouldn't you say? Yes, I know I would, of course. Yeah, they are. And um, but I think they're because of that, then they need to part of that lifestyle is that they need to get checked on a regular basis. And I think most of the younger generation will take that on board. But it just means that it's fine if you live in an area that you can access treatment and access care, really. Mm. And that is limited. I mean, at the same time, though, you get people like, uh, and maybe she's an outlier in this, somebody like, say, Louise Perry, uh, who worked formerly with the Rape Crisis Centre in the UK, writing a book, uh, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, saying that maybe, you know, with all the freedoms that are there, there's less freedom than there was. Yes, I think that that is true. And then it makes life very complicated for somebody, you know, and that's assuming that everybody is emotionally mature to deal with casual relationships. And that isn't always the case. And um, I think so. Yes, you need to. I'm not sure how hopefully that the educational system will address those issues. the frightening and end of oh you know you will get something you will die from something no longer applies. I think you do need to have the maturity though to deal with um, sexual relationships. I think the UN has a target of no new infections HIV infections by the year twenty thirty. Now is that a bit like the climate change objectives? That great idea, <coughs> but you know it mightn't happen. Um, I agree with you, it mightn't happen. Um, But it is great to have a a goal in sight. Mm. And we have some good things that there is. PrEP, which is a a drug that patients take. So you take it. There's PrEP and there's, sorry, there's PEP and there's PrEP. Just explain those for people who wouldn't understand them, me included. Okay. So PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So you're going out, you're in a risk category, you're maybe a young gay man, you're going out on the scene, you might have casual sex with somebody who potentially is HIV positive. And you, to prevent you getting that, you take one pill a day. Or you might say, oh, God, but would you take one pill a day for a whole year and you might only have casual sex on holidays, say. So you don't have to take it every day for a whole year. You can take it episodically. So you can take it in advance of going out, say, on holidays or going out to be sexually active. You're on Saturday night, say, and there's a way of doing that. Um, So it involves taking four four pills, which you take before, uh, just after and after. Okay. so that is prevention okay. and that is provided by the Irish government free to patients. They need to register, however, and there is a capacity issue at the moment. So there is a waiting list to get on the PrEP programme at the moment. So that's something that is purely economical and staff related. Okay. Then there is post-exposure prophylaxis. That's PEP, P-E-P, post-exposure. So 
you go out and you have a one night stand and you never intended having that one night stand and you have it with a risk in within a risk situation so no condom um, and somebody that you potentially could be HIV positive so there's no point saying you go and have a one night stand with a, a student in your class or something like that that uh, who is heterosexual that is probably not considered high enough risk to give somebody post exposure prophylaxis but somebody who has had a risk exposure they present to ED any emergency department in the whole of this country and likewise in Europe and they say they've had this exposure, they've baseline bloods and they're started on a programme of tablets. So it involves three drugs that they take for one for four weeks and that prevents them, the virus, if they've been exposed. exposed and PEP and PrEP, or pe- PrEP and PEP, are they solely for men? No. So you could have been a sexual assault, for instance, if you're female, or you could have had a contact with a male partner from a high risk country or or you could have had a needle stick from, say, one of the doctors who's looking after a patient who's HIV positive. That's another risk that we all face. But if somebody whose virus isn't suppressed and you stick yourself with a needle while you're taking blood, we put our medics, our doctors, our nurses on post-exposure prophylaxis. So when you look back over the decades now of your career, um, what's your overall assessment of the kind of treatments that are there and the kind of societal attitudes that we have? I think this is, well, I think the treatments are fantastic. I think we, I think it shows that if you have um, cooperation between countries, between scientists, between uh, medical health services, what you can do in that position. I think COVID also showed that. It, there is, and to discover a whole new virus, HIV, and that was a death sentence to everyone who got it. You know, there wasn't that some people died. It was any, everyone who got it died. There was a 1% of people who had the genetic abnormality that didn't but essentially you all died and now we have a disease that you live a normal life a normal life expectancy and when you're on medication you are not infectious to anyone so if I now go in which I've done and say taken blood from somebody or given them a vaccine and stick the needle accidentally into myself and their virus is suppressed I'm not going to get anything I'm not worried it's a really total change but to come back to where we started and Rory O'Neill, he was on the Late Late Show after he was on Dancing with the Stars and he said to Ryan Tuberty, you know, there's still a stigma there. If you wanted to do a, a Late Late special about cancer, you'd have no problem filling the audience. But if you wanted to do a Late Late special about HIV, you would have a problem filling the audience seats. And yes, he's probably right. I think um, you will have the likes of Panty. You will have people who are out there, but not that many are holding up their hands saying, hi, I'm I'm your doctor and I'm HIV positive, but I'm not going to give you anything or I'm, you know, and you would get an audience who would be interested, but not an audience of HIV positive patients. And I suppose that was one of the big factors when I look back, unlike, you know, the US and the UK, like the UK had Freddie Mercury, they had everybody, you know, raising money, doing the concerts. Ireland had no one, like we had nobody you know when you think everybody kept it quiet for many young men or particularly anybody who had any celebrity status they 
kept their mouths shut. They, you know, they felt they couldn't be um, open, vocal. And that also was a very negative impact in terms of how we progressed HIV in Ireland. Um, like the states had Maggie Johnson. They had, you know, everybody you could think of. The UK Queen and, you know, Freddie Mercury. All of those, there were the big names, but there weren't any big, like, Rory is great to be out there now. But well, David so Norris being the obvious one, I suppose, um, he campaigned on it. He went all the way to yeah. the European Court of Human Rights. Right. And then we had, firstly, the decriminalisation of homosexual yeah, acts. Yeah. Then there was um, civil partnerships. Then there was same-sex marriage. And another transformation. Yeah, uh, of Irish society, yeah. It's amazing, really. And we led the way in many of those areas, particularly the same-sex marriage and so forth. Would you have predicted it uh, when you were asked that question at your first interview? Did you favour the decriminalisation or the legalisation of homosexuality, I think is how you put it? Oh, yeah. I thought definitely would have happened early on. But would that have translated into all the other issues that have emerged since then? No, never have predicted that. Like it was, yeah. If you had your career over again, what would you do differently? What would I do differently? I'm not sure I'd do a lot different. I had a great time. It was the most amazing career ever. Like who else? I, I consider myself so lucky. And it was great fun and really challenging. Um, would I do anything different? I might have been a bit more forceful in the beginning, but then... Maybe they did. You possibly me. made up for it later in your career. <laughs> yeah, um, but and you you must have had great colleagues and a great esprit de corps as well. I mean, because we've been talking about stuff that's very dark, it's very painful, it's very yeah. bleak. And you say you had great fun. Oh, yeah. The, the Irish sense of humour is beyond belief. So I'm always saying that people talk about resilience, but they never mention that humour and I think we're great in Ireland about it is fantastic is one of the key issues and also we have a balanced family lives and so forth I think that's that's important too Fiona Mulcahy thank you so much indeed for coming in to talk to us Um, and may you have a long and happy uh, retirement you deserve it thanks very much Sean thank you To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.